I'm not going to read all of Revelation 17 and 18 in the opening here. I'm just going to read certain parts. I'll tell you what to look at. But we will look at every verse of both chapters uh, in the message. So Revelation 17, I ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word, uh, page 958 if you have a pew Bible. Revelation 17, verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of sexual immorality, and those who live on the earth became drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. Now look at verse 14 of 17. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. Now look at chapter 18 and verse 1. And after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated from His glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For the nations have fallen because of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of sexual immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich from the excessive wealth of her luxury. And I heard another voice out of heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her offenses. Now look down at verse 9. And the kings of the earth, who committed acts of sexual immorality and lived luxuriously with her, will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city. For in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her. Because no one buys their cargo anymore. And then look down at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced for you judgment against her. title of the message this morning is The Danger and the Destiny of Worldliness. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. You are wonderful. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of our devotion. Far more worthy than our minds can understand. Far more Worthy, Lord, than, than what we really know. We do need you, Father, to open our minds to, to better understand your greatness and your majesty. Lord, as we look at this book of Revelation, let our minds be enlarged to truly how wonderful and amazing you are, Lord. When we have a small view of you, the kind of devotion you call us to seems too much. Father, when we have a small view of you, the, the reality of judgment seems too harsh. But Lord, when we understand who you are and we understand what you are, then Lord, we are simply amazed that you would give us any opportunities whatsoever to do for you anything. And we would give our lives to do anything and everything you'd have us to do. And Lord, we are also amazed that while judgment is truly just and deserved, we are amazed we are not one of the ones being judged because we know we have sinned. We have fallen short. We have rebelled against you, O God, and you have shown us mercy and grace. And we rejoice today. In that, continue to open our eyes to your beauty, continue to open our eyes to just how wonderful and holy and powerful you truly are. Let us be in all of you all throughout our lives. Give us a a hunger and a desire for your word that as we 
go through our days, Lord, we would long to be in the Word. We would long to study the Word. We would let it speak into our lives to, to put us back in the right way if we get out of the way, that it would make us wise so that as we deal with the issues of this life, we would make godly decisions and not, not necessarily what the world would say ought to be done. Let your word rejoice our hearts, Father. Lord, our hearts are often heavy things right now. It can be difficult for many. But Lord, there is joy in you. There is the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Let your word rejoice our hearts. Fill me today with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I would speak your words and your ways for your glory, God, so that my speech and preaching would not be with the enticing words of man's wisdom. It would be in demonstration of your spirit and your power so people's faith would stand not in my wisdom or my eloquence, but in you, who you are and what you've done. Use this time to challenge us, to strengthen us, to convict us, to save us, to restore us, to generally just work in us and make us more like Jesus than we were when we came. We ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Try be seated. In Revelation 15 and 16, we saw the final judgment of God as the seven bowls of wrath being poured out upon the world. The description of God's wrath in those chapters was pretty terrifying, uh, and it left the world in complete and utter devastation. What we're looking at today is continuation of this judgment. The scene described in Revelation 17 and 18 is what we've called at other times in our study of Revelation a perspective vision. Revelation 15 and 16 showed the final judgment of God from one perspective. And then Revelation 17 and 18 shows God's judgment from a, on the Antichrist and on his kingdom from a different perspective. And what we're going to do today, we're just going to kind of go through more or less verse by verse, looking at what it teaches us. And then at the end, we're going to show, give you a few lessons of what we can learn from this chapter. So verse 1, Revelation 17 and 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here and I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. So the angel revealing this is one of those who's poured out the bowls. And now he's showing the judgment in a different direction than what he has seen before. This is going to be the seeing it from the perspective of how the judgment of God is poured out on the economic political kingdom set up by the beast uh, or the Antichrist in Revelation 13. And 14. Now, the, the description of the kingdom the Antichrist sets up, the beast sets up, is interesting. The, the kingdom itself is called the great prostitute. Now, as we look at this idea of what it means for the kingdom to be a prostitute, it's going to tell us a lot about the attraction of the kingdom then and the attraction of the, the kingdom of the Antichrist even today. Right? The, the idea of the, Antichrist, or the kingdom being a, a great prostitute symbolizes two things. First is idolatry. We, we probably thought of immorality first, but that's one. But idolatry. In, in the time of the New Testament, many false religions often had prostitutes that were, high, that were priestesses. And so one of the ways you would worship this particular God would be go to the temple, you would pay the price, and you would intermingle with the, the, the holy prostitute. And that was a way to worship the God. Uh, idolatry is very much a part of what we're seeing in the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now remember, the, the Antichrist sets himself up, the beast sets himself up as though he himself were God. He is going to be worshipped as God. So one of the, the fundamental pillars of his kingdom is idolatry. Worship him, don't worship Yahweh. Also, there is, of course, immorality. 
immorality, the immorality of the, the kingdom of the Antichrist is seen all throughout. It, besides the description of the great prostitute, in verse 2, we see that the kings of the earth committed acts of sexual immorality. Those who live on the earth became drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And, and we see sexual immorality mo- mentioned over and over and over again throughout this chapter. 17.4 it says the woman is clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones, holding a cup full of abominations of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. Um, those who mourn in Revelation 18, the, more, the fall of the kingdom, are those who they mourn and they have taken part in the sexual immorality. So one of the, the key characterizations or the key aspects of the Antichrist kingdom is that of immorality, particularly sexual immorality. Right, So th- this is a really kind of a contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Antichrist. Right? The kingdom of God calls us to a life of holiness. Be holy as I am holy. The kingdom of the Antichrist is sexual immorality or immorality in general. Uh, it, it is a, a, a picture of just if it feels good, do it. Right? Go about and seek sensual pleasures. That's what it's about. Now, we also see that the kingdom, it sets on many waters. It says the end of verse 1. Now, if you look at chapter 17 and verse 15, we see what the many waters are. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the prostitute sets are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And what this tells us is this is a worldwide Kingdom. Now, we've talked about this being a one world government, a one world religion. And, and over and over in this cha- in these two chapters, we're given this picture that it is indeed a one world government. It, it, it spans the globe. And, and what we see is the people of the earth gladly go after this kingdom because it offers them this immorality. They, they gladly worship the beast and his image so they can live this life. Of immorality. The kingdom, it offers these to the kings of the earth, uh, the rich and the powerful, but also, verse 2, just the people of the earth. So, this immorality, this sensual pleasure is not just offered to somebodies and somewhats, but it's everybody. And, and it's embraced. That The picture here is that it's embraced all over the world, but it's embraced by everyone in the world. It's embraced by the rich and the powerful. But it's also embraced by the regular normal people who just kind of live on the street and live in the towns. The rich and the poor, the powerful and the insignificant all embrace the kingdom of the Antichrist. Verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemies or full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman, which is the prostitute, which is the kingdom, sits on a scarlet Beast. The, the idea is that the kingdom itself is built on the back of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the ultimate power behind it. This kingdom will appear to be good. The world will largely think this is a good thing, but it's actually an evil kingdom. It is built and empowered by Satan and by his Antichrist. This beast is full of blasphemous names. We've talked about in the past what this refers to his saying he is God. His declarations of him being the God all of the other religions talked about. He has horns and heads and all of these 
represent various kinds of political power. Look at chapter 17, verse 9. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits. And there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is yet. Uh, one is and the other has not yet come. When he comes, he must remain a little while. The beast which was and is not is himself an eighth. Uh, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw, the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings of the beast for one hour. They have one purpose. They give their power and their authority to the beast. We've talked about all of this at, at various times, so I'll just be quick. Uh, the seven mountains probably refers to Rome, which was built upon seven mountains, picturing a sort of revived Roman Empire. Uh, not so much it will call itself a revived Roman Empire, but more that it will... Mimic the Roman Empire in its in its power and its size and its cruelty and its influence over the world. The the horns and all of that represent kings which have yet to come to pass. But when the Antichrist is rising to power, they will rise to power, and then with and almost like in one day and in one moment, they will give their power and their authority to the Antichrist, saying, "He is God. We worship him. We will follow him." Verse four. So the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, <clears throat> precious stones, pearls, holding in her, ha- in her hand a cup, gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. This also <clears throat> gives us another reason why the world just adopts this kingdom and and goes along with what it's saying. The idea that she was clothed in purple, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, it it speaks of of wealth and speaks of luxury. In in this day, crimson was very, very hard to come by. Scarlet and purple was very hard to come by. Um, And it was expensive. And and pretty much only the the richest people of the world and kings and rulers were able to afford anything clothed or colored in those colors. So the idea that she is adorned with gold, she's clothed in purple and scarlet, it it pictures that this kingdom is a wealthy kingdom. It is not going to be a poor, struggling kingdom. It is going to be a, a kingdom lavishly wealthy. In fact, if you look at 18 and verse 7, chapter 18 and verse 7, we see to the extent that she glorified herself and she lived luxuriously. right? So the kingdom itself offers luxury and wealth and opulence and splendor and all of the things. Uh, but it not only has it for itself, it gives it to the people who embrace the kingdom. If you look at chapter 18 and verse 3. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed acts of sexual immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich from the excessive wealth of her luxury. If you look at chapter 18 and verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, every kind of wood, every article of ivory, every article made from Very valuable wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine, olive oil, flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, cargoes of horses, carriages, slaves, and human lives. So this this kingdom offers wealth, opulence, not only in itself, but to the people. Right. So we see the merchants are made wealthy, but merchants are only made wealthy as people buy their stuff. Right. Just having a lot of stuff doesn't make a merchant wealthy. 
The wealth, the merchant only gets wealthy as people buy it. So the merchants are made wealthy as they go and gather this stuff and the people buy it. The people have the money. So what this kingdom offers is not just like a little bit of wealth, but all of your wildest dreams will come true kind of wealth. You can have anything your heart desires kind of wealth. And when you take that with what we've already seen about the sensual pleasure, what we find is this kingdom offers to the people, embrace me, embrace the kingdom, and I will give you all the worldly wealth you could ever hope for and all the sensual pleasure you could ever desire. And it all becomes available to whosoever will. Whosoever will take the mark. Whosoever will worship the image. Whosoever will do it, can do anything they want. They will have all the money they want. No sin will be taboo. They will be able to do anything they want to do. If it feels good, do it. Will be the motto of the kingdom of the Antichrist. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 17. And I saw the woman drunk. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. The kingdom of the Antichrist cements its power through the death of disciples of Jesus. One of the ways to ensure you are the one world power is to kill off anyone who opposes your one world power, such as those who say you're not God. There is one God and his name is Jesus. If you remember, we've talked about this in previous chapters. They hunt the disciples of Jesus from one end of the earth to the other. Uh, And in fact, Revelation 16, 5 tells us the shedding of the blood of the disciples of Jesus is part of what makes them worthy of the wrath. And in fact, we'll talk about, we'll see that again in a later part in these chapters. If you look at 17 and 14, these, speaking of the, the kingdom and those who embrace the kingdom, will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Those who are with Him are called, are the called and chosen and faithful. So this verse is really important. First we see that these, the, the the Antichrist and all those who embrace him will wage war against the Lamb. They are in complete opposition to Jesus and to his kingdom. But we've talked about before, we know that the spirit of the Antichrist is not just some future thing, but the book of John, 1 John, tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world right now. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So the, the, the spirit that opposes then is the spirit that opposes now. Where does opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ come from? What is it that motivates groups in other parts of the world to hunt down and, and murder people for proclaiming Jesus as Lord? What in, in our nation, what in our nation causes people to oppose things like the Child Evangelism Fellowship for trying to evangelize children, but endorses and encourages things like Drag Queen Story Hour, which also seeks to evangelize children. Where does that level of opposition to righteousness and goodness and purity come from? Right here. The spirit of the Antichrist that is at work in the world now. Everything we see in this world, for now and in the ages to come, that is opposing Jesus, that opposes His kingdom, His righteousness, His standard, and His gospel, is from the spirit of the Antichrist who is waging war against the Lamb. And so if we join Jesus' team, 
And we try to advance His gospel, His word, His righteousness, His standards, His kingdom in the world. We will face opposition from the spirit of the Antichrist that is at work in the world today. And this would be a fearful thought if it wasn't for the rest of verse 14. But the Lamb will overcome because He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. Those who are with Him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. In the end, Jesus wins. The world, the flesh, the devil, the spirit of the Antichrist will all win many smaller battles between now and the last days. But they do not win the war. In the end, Jesus wins. And those who have trusted in Him are a part of the victory. If you look at verse 16 of chapter 17. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the prostitute, will make her desolate and naked, will eat her flesh and will burn her with fire. This is interesting. Uh, and just the idea that the kingdom, in some, at some point, it turns on itself. Evil always does. It, it will bite, devour, and eventually destroy itself. Look at verse 17, 17. For God has put it in their hearts to execute His purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdoms the beast till the word of God will be fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city who reigns over the kings of the earth. The idea is a continuation of what we saw in verse 14. God, In the end, God wins. Uh, but... This is important because it means God is in control, right? I mean, God is, never loses control. He is always sovereign. It, it, it appears for a time the Antichrist wins. It, it appears for a time his kingdom conquers and diminishes or extinguishes the kingdom of God. But, but that's not the case. God allows the Antichrist to have a measure of victory for a period of time until he determines it's over. And then once God determines it's time for the end to come and the kingdom to be destroyed, that's exactly what will happen. Uh, he just does it and no one can stop him. Now we move into chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 1 through 3. And after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with, from his glory and he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become the dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of unclean and hateful birds. For the nations have fallen because of the wine of the passion for sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of sexual immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have become rich in the excessive wealth of her luxury. Right? We, we, this has given us the picture that this judgment is going to be total. Right? God not only judges the earth itself, God not only judges the religious system the Antichrist says up, but God also judges the political kingdom. Right? And again, we're reminded again that this is a, a global kingdom and an immoral kingdom. If you look at verse 4, it's interesting. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her offenses. God calls on His people then and, and now to avoid the deception and seduction of the world. Now, of course, by this time, there, as I understand it, there are no disciples of Jesus in the world at this time. This is almost like a parenthetical statement. In this time when judgment is falling, the disciples of Jesus are gone. They have been taken out one way or another. This is a parenthetical statement to us, to the original readers. Because the kingdom of the Antichrist... It's not just a future kingdom. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world today, drawing people 
<clears throat> to identify with that to identify with the kingdom of the Antichrist, to embrace it and seek and pursue worldly wealth and sensual pleasure above all else. And the warning that we're given here is to come out from among it. Be aware of it. Because, notice what it says, come out of her so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. That's a warning. I mean, that's a strong warning. That when we begin to to want what the world offers, when we begin to, to pursue what the Spirit of the Antichrist is calling us to pursue, what we end up doing, we take part of their sins and we will end up receiving her plagues or her judgments. You know, God has always intended on His people to be different than the people of the world. Our values, our morals, our priorities, our attitudes, our actions, how we love, who we love, the way we live our day-to-day lives, the way we spend our money and our time and our talents, all of those things. We are meant to be different. God over and over again, Old and New Testament, calls His people to come out from among them and be different, be holy as I am holy. And be sure, the Spirit of the living God is never encouraging us to conform to the world. The Spirit of the living God is never encouraging us to take part in those sins, to embrace those desires. The Spirit of the living God is never leading us contrary to the Word of God. So we are warned to come out from among them so we do not participate in their sins and receive any of their plagues. It goes on that the sins of the kingdom have piled up as high as heaven. God has remembered her offenses. Now, this is an interesting word picture. Because it does picture the sins of the kingdom as being in a great, enormous pile. And we see this in other places in God's Word. In, in the Old Testament, God tells Abraham He's going to give them a land. But not yet. Because the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, He says. And so for the next several hundred years, God gives the, the Amorites... Grace, mercy, opportunities to turn from their sins, to turn from their iniquities, to turn to Yahweh and begin to worship Him. But in the time of Joshua, they haven't. And their iniquity is full. And Joshua comes in as God's righteous instrument of judgment and brings the judgment on the land. The picture here is a very similar one. The kingdom of the Antichrist, the sins are piling up. And God in mercy, God in grace is sparing. He's holding off. He's not acting in His wrath and in His judgment. But the day will come when the sins pile up high enough that God's wrath will come. Right? And so this is a kind of a, a great picture that this, at this point they've come and they've piled and God's doing it. But it's just a reminder that up until, up until we saw the bowls being poured out, there was mercy. The gospel was going out. There were the witnesses who went throughout the earth. There was the angel proclaiming the gospel in the heavens. And all of that time, God was saying, repent, believe the gospel. Be saved. Don't, don't follow and don't take part in this. But the time came when the sins fell over, so to speak, and judgment fell. I think for us, we could look at this in our day and say, it's the same thing. If we live in rebellion against God, our sins pile up and they pile up and they pile up and God in His mercy is giving us opportunities to hear the gospel, to repent, to believe, to have these chances. But then there comes a time where they pile up so high, God's mercy ends and God's wrath falls. It's a warning. And God is going to, verse 6, pay her back even as she has paid 
and give her back double according to her deeds and the, the cup which is mixed. Twice as much for her. This We've talked about the, the cup of God's wrath being poured out upon them in full strength. Now, verse 7, the first part of verse 7 is, I don't know, man, this was really challenging this week. To the extent that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, to the same extent give her torment and mourning. Now that's a, think about that. To the extent she has lived in luxury and glorified herself to that extent, give her torment and mourning. And, and I know, like, America is not Babylon necessarily. But you think about our country. What if God, I mean, surely we could say our, our sins and our nation are piling up too, right? And we live very much in, in a luxury, especially in comparison to most other parts of the world. We, we are very good at glorifying ourselves. What if God were to give us, to the same extent, torment and mourning, the piling on? I don't know, to me it's just a warning. And we will talk about the warning of wealth, but there, there's a very much a very real warning against the pull of wealth. It pulls us, it holds us, and if we're not careful, we can choose luxury and self-glorification over living for Jesus. And in the end, that seems to be a damning thing to do. Verse 8, for this reason, and one day her plagues will come. Plague and mourning and famine shall be burned with fire. For, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. So in this, we begin to see some, some facts about the way the judgment is. That the kingdom is left in ruins when God's judgment is through. Right, Verse 8, it's burned up with fire. If you look at verse 9, uh, the kings of the earth who committed acts of sexual immorality and lived luxuriously with her will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 18, it says, And were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? So think of a building lost in a fire, right? It's not just caught fire, but it has essentially burned out. And all that's left is smoldering ruins. That's the picture of what the kingdom is going to be left after God brings His judgment upon them. So this is a a total destruction of the kingdom. There's nothing left. Um, God's judgment leaves those who embrace the kingdom in mourning. Right? As the kingdom is burned up, as the kingdom is destroyed, all those who have put their hopes in the Antichrist and his kingdom, they find their hopes are left crushed, dashed. There's, there's nothing. And they're left in a state of mourning. Right? Uh, sorry, verse 9. The kings of the earth, they weep and mourn. Verse 10. They stand at a distance and they fear her torment. And they're, whoa, whoa, that is a kind of lamenting. Verse 11, the merchants weep and mourn. Verse 15, the merchants again are still weeping and mourning. They're standing in fear and shock and horror. Uh, Verse 16, they're lamenting again. Verse 18, they're crying. And verse 19, they're throwing dust on their heads in great lament. Now, what what is especially interesting to see is why they're mourning. The judgment of God is falling. It's falling on them for their rebellion against God, their embracing of the Antichrist and his immorality. And they're not mourning their sin. They're not mourning the judgment of God. They're mourning 
the loss of their wealth. Right? They're, they're mourning because no one's going to buy their goods anymore. They're, they're mourning because their ability to take part in those sensual pleasures are gone. They're, they're not mourning for any righteous reason. They're mourning the loss. <coughs> their personal loss. Their, their loss of worldly wealth. Their loss of the ability to take part in sensual pleasures. There is no thought. They have chosen badly. There is no repentance over their sin. There is no consideration. They have put their hopes in the wrong person, in the wrong place. There is just sorrow. Their loss of worldly wealth and their loss of sensual pleasures. And God's judgment also leaves those who embrace it destitute. Those who took the mark of the beast and embraced the kingdom of the Antichrist to put all their eggs, so to speak, in the, the basket of the Antichrist and his kingdom. They determined God's word was wrong. God's son was a fraud. The false prophet was right. And they embraced the Antichrist as God. They gave him their loyalty. They gave him their devotion. They gave him their worship. They formalized that by taking his mark on their body. And they had done this in exchange for worldly wealth and sensual pleasures. Now, all of that was gone. They had lost everything. There was no one to buy their wares. There was nothing left but smoldering ruins. What Verse 14 is really interesting. The fruit you longed for has left you. And all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and people will no longer find them. They, they had lost what they longed for. They hadn't longed for God. They hadn't longed for salvation. They hadn't longed for Jesus or God's word or God's salvation. They had not longed for intimacy with God or more of the Holy Spirit. They had longed for worldly wealth. They had longed for sinful, sensual pleasures. And for a time, the Antichrist gave them those things. But then those things had now passed away and they would no longer find them. Similar to what John says about don't love the world. The world and its lust are passing away. So people who long for those things... They, they may, for a period of time, find them here and now. But those things don't last. Those things aren't eternal. There will come a time where those things fail them and they are left spiritually and morally and, in this case, financially destitute. They had traded their souls for worldly wealth, sensual pleasure, and they had lost it all. God's judgment leaves the world in shock over how severe it is. Chapter 18, verse 7, the widow, or the, the widow, no, the, the prostitute says in her heart, I, I'm, I sit as a queen. I'm not going to be a widow. I'll, I'll never see mourning. Now, if you remember in previous chapters, when the Antichrist was building his kingdom, the people said, who, who is like the beast? Who could make war with him? So the kingdom is built as this sort of unsinkable kingdom, unshakable kingdom. No one can fight against it. No one can oppose it. You just as well go ahead and embrace it. And everyone goes along with that and they begin to believe. And then in just one moment to the next, the kingdom is destroyed. It's not attacked in one moment to the next. It is leveled. It is flattened. It is burned. It is left in ruins. Think about what we saw from Matthew, or I'm sorry, from Revelation 15 and 16. Mountains collapse and islands sink. There is just absolute devastation. And they are left in shock at how much they have lost and how wrong they were about the Antichrist and his kingdom. And then we see that God's judgment against the world is just. Chapter 18 and verse 20. 
The saints are called to rejoice because of what's done, because God has pronounced judgment against her. If you look at verse 24, chapter 18, And in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who have been slaughtered on the earth. One of the reasons God brought judgment on the Antichrist and his kingdom is the slaughter of the disciples of Jesus. The Antichrist and those who embraced the Antichrist embraced his rule for their lives, thought he had won when they slaughtered the disciples, but God had not forgotten it. He remembered, and so he brought judgment against them. And it's a just judgment because of their sin, because of their iniquity. Now, and a lot of all we've looked at in these two chapters that we've hurriedly kind of gone through, there is, I think, one key lesson for us. And we'll have to go quickly, goodness. The danger and destiny of worldliness is judgment. The danger of worldliness for us as disciples of Jesus is if we're not careful, it will draw us into judgment. The destiny of worldliness is this kind of judgment. God's judgment is real. God's judgment is just. And the worldly will face it. Now, three ways to respond quickly to the fact, danger and destiny of worldliness judgment. Beware or beware of the attraction of the world. Be aware or beware of the attraction of the world. The kingdom of the Antichrist covered the entire globe. Virtually all of humanity embraced it except for disciples of Jesus who were murdered for not embracing it. But what the Antichrist and his kingdom offered isn't something that's reserved for then. It's offered today as well. So what did the Antichrist kingdom offer that, that made it so popular? Well, it offered sensual pleasures. The idea of fornication and immorality is seen all throughout these two chapters. The kingdom promoted a world in which there was no standard of right and wrong. If it felt good, you should go ahead and do it. How could love be wrong? How could pleasure be wrong? How could, how could satisfying your sensual desires be wrong? Why should you have to keep to an ancient moral code? Well, that's not just for then, is it? I mean, that's the world we live in. The world we live in is, is continually telling us if it feels good, do it. As long as it doesn't hurt other people, it doesn't matter what you do. There, there is no standard. You, you've got to live by your truth, Red. And I gotta live by my truth, and if and if our truths are not the truth, who can say who can say what's true and what's right? The Bible's long warned us about this. The Bible the Apostle John called this the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh has to do with things we can touch, taste, smell, hear, see, and desire. It is a, the lust of the flesh is a desire to satisfy legitimate physical urges in illegitimate ways. It is to satisfy God-given urges and desires in ways that are contrary to God's Word. And this is absolutely at work in our world today. Our sinful nature in so many ways craves this. And the world offers it. And the devil controls the world. And so he knows how to orchestrate things in such a way that the world presents to us what arouses our lust, our flesh, to action. 
And then as we are aroused to this desire in this illegitimate way, we are constantly bombarded with voices saying it's all right. You shouldn't feel bad. You can't help it. That's who you are. Live in freedom. Be empowered. Love is love. Live by your truth. And all the while, it is not right. It is not real. It is the spirit of the Antichrist offering us the pleasures of the world that will lead to our damnation and our destruction. Take some time this week. Read the works of the flesh from Galatians chapter 5. We don't have time to look there. See some ways the world will tempt us. We're all attracted to those things in various ways. And we have to, to be aware of that and beware of this attraction. The kingdom of the Antichrist also offered worldly wealth all throughout these two chapters. The kingdom is described in ways to show it is a wealthy kingdom. Enabling those who embraced it to live in worldly wealth. Now, all the way back in Revelation 13, 16 and 17, the people sold their souls by taking the mark of the beast. There was no way to buy or sell, have a job, or prosper without taking the mark of the beast. But if they took the mark, they could not only buy or sell, they would be given all the, the worldly wealth they could ever imagine. They could live luxuriously. They could buy what the merchants were bringing in. If you just took the mark, Worshipped the beast. And so they sold their souls. They traded their souls for the worldly wealth the kingdom of the Antichrist offered. But again, that's not just for something that's future down the road. People sell their souls for worldly wealth in our day all the time. The Apostle John warned us about this as well. And he called it the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes has to do with anything we can see and then begin to desire. It can be something we see. And that is expressly forbidden and we desire it anyway. Or it could be something that we see and it's not, it's not expressly forbidden. But the desire for it overwhelms us and becomes the driving force in our life. The, the materialistic desire for more, better, faster in our day is the lust of the eyes. It is what the kingdom of the Antichrist offers. It is from the spirit of the Antichrist at work in the world today. But again, we don't have time, but read what Timothy, what Paul warns Timothy about the love of money being the root of all kinds of evil. Many people desiring it have, have strayed from the faith and pierced their own souls through. And we are all attracted to this in various ways. We must be aware, beware the attraction of the world. We must be aware, beware of the attraction of the world because the danger and destiny of worldliness is judgment. Secondly, realize earthly priorities testify of eternal destinies. Realize earthly priorities testify of eternal destinies. Something else we see in, in not only just these two chapters, but in the, the world, the, the, the kingdom the Antichrist builds is that the people... They go in on it, right? They, they make choices here on the earth that at a later time testified of what their eternal destiny would be. Meanwhile, the people of God are called to come out of it, to not go in and have part of that because what we do on the earth, what we do in this life testifies 
of our eternity. It testifies of something. Right? Faith in Jesus isn't just saying I believe in Jesus and I live how I want to. God's Word repeatedly tells us faith without works is dead. So if I say I believe in Jesus, but I live like I'm a part of the Antichrist kingdom, I'm really not saved. So our earthly priorities testify of our eternal destiny, regardless of what words we might say. Now this was true then, and it's true now. Look at what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. From any walk of whom I've told you, I've often told you, and now tell you even as I weep, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who have set their minds on earthly things. Now, I want to look at it from the bottom and work our way up. So he's talking about people who have set their minds on earthly things. Now, if we think about setting our minds on earthly things, in light of what we've talked about, we could say setting our mind on earthly things would mean focusing our life on experiencing sensual pleasures or the accumulation of worldly wealth. That's setting our mind on earthly things. And those who set their mind on earthly things, they do so because their appetite is their God. Now the idea of their appetite being their God refers to all of their physical desires. They are driven by the desire for worldly worldly wealth and sensual pleasures. And, and in fact, they probably glory in their accumulation of these things now. But one day what they glory in now will be shameful to them. Moving up, we see their end is destruction. Which is clearly a reference to judgment. Their end is destruction because they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They, they oppose the message, the mission of the cross. The way they live, the way they act is in continual opposition to the message and mission of Christ. Now notice Paul mentions that he weeps over these people, which is interesting. Because most of the time when Paul talked about people who were enemies of the cross of Christ, he talked about false teachers. And Paul's words towards false teachers weren't a whole lot of weeping towards them. He spoke harshly. About them, called them out by name, said he wished they would emasculate themselves. I mean, he said harsh things about them. Why then does he weep over these people? Well, in light of the previous verses, which we don't have time to look at, but you can take time and look at the verses around it, it's because he's talking about people who are what we might call today nominal Christians. They profess Jesus with their mouth. But really their minds are on earthly things. They claim to be followers of Christ, but they really glory in things they'll be ashamed of when Jesus comes back. They claim to be devoted to Jesus, but really their appetites, their physical appetites, are the driving force of their life. They claim to be saved, but their end is really destruction. They claim to to serve Jesus, but their very lives oppose the gospel of Christ be someone like Demas, who was a missionary alongside the Apostle Paul, but abandoned him and Jesus because he loved the things of the world. This would be the Laodicean church that accumulated lots of wealth in this life, but had missed out on the true riches of Jesus. Earthly 
priorities reveal eternal destinies. We have to know that. We have to realize earthly priorities testify of eternal destinies because the danger and destiny of worldliness is judgment. And then finally, trust in and live for Jesus. While the wrath of God against the world is the focus of the last several chapters, we cannot miss the fact some have missed this judgment. We're told in 1714, while the Antichrist makes war with the Lamb, he loses. Jesus wins, and those who have trusted in Jesus get to be a part of the win. Now, this sounds easy enough, right? Yes, I believe in Jesus. I get to take part in the win of Jesus. Huzzah. But before we do that, let's remember who these people are. It calls them here called and chosen and faithful. But let's think about who they are in light of what we've seen in the book of Revelation. These that are called and chosen and faithful, they took the gospel to the ends of the earth despite severe and extreme opposition from the Antichrist and all the people of the world. These who are called and chosen and faithful refuse to worship the image of the beast at the cost of their own lives. These who are called and chosen and faithful refused to take the mark of the beast and so were unable to buy or sell, hold down jobs. And so they were either murdered for their devotion to Jesus or they may be starved to death because they could get no food. These who are the called and chosen and faithful forsook sinful pleasures, sensual pleasures and worldly wealth in favor of faithfulness to Jesus at the cost of their own Lives. Now, as far as the world was concerned, they were fools. They lost. They lost their jobs. They lost their lives. They lost their homes. They lost their families. They they lost everything. But in eternity, there was a great reversal. And those who embraced the kingdom of the Antichrist, they lost out eternally. But those who chose Jesus won. Get to be a part of the victory of Christ. So the question for us, are we willing to lose out on worldly wealth and sensual pleasures now so we can win in eternity? Jesus calls us to do just that. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Anyone. If you or I want to follow Jesus, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. Now, we have a choice, though. Right. We can choose to save our life right now. Right now, we can choose to save this life for worldly pleasures, worldly wealth and sensual pleasures. But if we do. We lose eternally. Or we can choose to lose out on worldly wealth and sensual pleasures now. And we can win out in eternity. The question though. What what good is it? If he gains the world but forfeits his soul. What is worth exchanging your soul for? What if we gained 
all the worldly wealth we could ever imagine to do all the things we could ever dream of that lost our soul in the process, would that be a worthy exchange? What if we were able to do all the sinful, sensual things we wanted to do with no repercussions, no consequences, but we lost out eternity? Would that be worth it? Well, Jesus' answer is, is no. It's not. And so what we have to realize is Jesus offers us eternal salvation, ultimate salvation then, but now. But now he calls on us to live a life of self-denial, cross-bearing, sacrificial living, and not be conformed to this world. But the spirit of the Antichrist at work in the world calls us to something different. The spirit of the Antichrist is calling us to ultimate damnation. But, but, before you focus on that, there's all of this worldly wealth. There's all of this sensual pleasure. There's all, look at all of the shiny, pretty, boopy, boppy things around us. It can all be yours. I didn't, didn't Satan tell Jesus, all this I will give you if you will just worship me. See, the devil doesn't come dressed in pointy horns and a pointy tail. As the, the saying that I've seen, I don't know who said it initially, says, he often comes as our greatest desires you can have it all now but you're going to lose out then the reality the sad reality the majority of humans are perfectly willing to trade their eternal souls for sensual pleasure and worldly wealth and that's not just for the kingdom of the antichrist that is every day every day all around us, people are making that exchange. They're taking what's here right now, hoping in the end things work out differently than what the Bible says. And what we're told here is it won't work out differently. Those who choose what the spirit of the Antichrist is offering, they forfeit their soul in the process. A pastor named C.J. Mahaney once wrote, The greatest danger to the church in America is not persecution from the world, but being seduced by the world. As American Christians, we are not likely to be beaten, stabbed, shot, burned out, harmed in any physical way for our faith and our devotion to Jesus. Persecution from the world is not our great threat. But the seduction of the world, the seduction of the spirit of the Antichrist that calls us to be Laodiceans, that calls us to worldly wealth and sensual pleasures and call it blessings from God. To pursue those things and say, well, the world is different now. That that's the danger. That's where the destruction is. That's what the word is warning us against in chapter 18 and verse 4. As disciples of Jesus, we cannot be seduced by the world. Rather than trading our souls for sensual pleasures and worldly wealth, we must live for Jesus, believe in Jesus, because we know the danger 
and the destiny of worldliness is the judgment of God. I want you to close your head, close your head, close your eyes, bow your head. And I want you to ask yourself, have you been seduced by the world? Have you been seduced by the world where your pursuit in life is of worldly wealth or of sensual pleasures instead of Jesus? If so, you must turn. Whatever you're pursuing, whatever you acquire will not be worth your soul. And make no mistake, you will lose your soul in the process. Jesus pleads with us. Not to exchange our souls for worldly wealth and sensual pleasures. If we have done it, we have gone far, far away. He calls us back. He calls us to Himself. God's Word says that the Lord is good. He is ready to forgive. And He is abundant in mercy to all who call upon Him. This morning, if you have been seduced by the world, call upon the Lord. Receive His mercy. Receive His forgiveness. Experience His goodness. Do not let temporary things be your destruction. I'm going to pray. Go ahead and stand. going to pray. The altars will be open after I pray. If you want to come forward, cry out to the Lord for mercy and grace.